This is Alima of the Sex Bots, and you're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick Community Radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join me as we seek out new ideas and new realms of perception and relationship in the world. If dogs run free, why not we? Across the swooping plain. My ears hear a symphony of two mules, trains, and rain. Best is always yet to come. That's what they explain to me. Just do your thing, you'll be king. If dogs run free. Good morning, everyone. Here we are 
at the Magical Mystery Tour. And I have two wonderful guests in the studio with me. I've got Sarah Van Hoy and Lisa Weil, who are teachers in Goddard's new Embodiment Studies program. So Embodiment Studies is not new at Goddard, but it's, it has a new status. Right. Does that change anything? Hmm. Well, to quote Naomi Klein, the title of one of her recent books, it changes everything. <laughs> <laughs> and ideally, it will change the world. Well, we're definitely going to get to that, <laughs> because I think the world is severely in need of changing. And it seems to me that through embodiment is the only way. Through our bodies yeah. is, is the only way. You got it. You got it. To, to make that happen. Yeah. But we'll get there. We'll, we'll unpack that gradually over the next hour and a half. And so you say it changes everything? Does well, we'll it, start small. We'll start with what does it change here at Goddard. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Sarah wants to take that since she's done more of the articulating. I've been working with embodiment study students here for, uh, <laughs> now it's been about 13 or 14 years and Sarah has in the last few years, and she did an amazing job. We took what was basically a curriculum designed by Eliep, who retired several years ago, and Sarah converted it into something that's, it's, it's more expansive, in some ways more concrete. Anyway, you, you, you say a little bit about what you did in terms of making this into a viable concentration. Well, as you know, Goddard has this knowing, doing, and being triad in its pedagogy. So we thought about embodiment through those containers, and particularly the doing container. We got excited about the different practice areas related to embodiment, everything from writing and creativity to racial justice, environmental justice, performance disability studies, somatics, obviously. And not to forget the living earth, because ecology. I mean, it's yeah. to say that we live in physical bodies, which is the foundation of embodiment studies, is also to say that we live in a physical universe and this huge physical body that all of our human bodies live in. So that relationship is also... A yeah, part of it. We, when you design a curriculum of sorts, even though Goddard students really design their own curriculum, but you design the scaffolding, you get to insist on a few things. Yeah. So we, we insisted that part of the study has to be an exploration of ecological bodies, yeah. of social bodies, and of body as the ground of, of knowledge. Yeah. yeah. And we will flesh that out more. Yeah. Good verb to we use have, there. Yeah. <laughs> it fits with the theme. Yeah. Yeah. We had this wonderful idea of how we wanted to begin, but our th Oh yeah. But we have a third a third of our body isn't here because <laughs> she's probably she's doing she's probably engaged in some really intense body activity right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brushing her teeth. That. <laughs> But And so she has a lot to say on that. But we could start, I mean, we thought that would be an amazing way to start because every residency we have an embody colloquium, an embodiment colloquium, and that's basically what we do. We, we try to allow our bodies to talk. 
which is something none of us can really do, but we try to approximate that by talking about our lived experience as bodies, which is actually not as easy to do as you might think, because we've all been trained away from it. I mean, especially in institutions like this. So it's, it's, it's hard at first, but we thought we might begin by attempting to do that about our own bodies, just starting with this moment, you know, and then sort of move from there to, so how does this become an academic field of inquiry, you know? I don't know, are we ready to do that? So, so, and we had I a very specific thing that Sarah talked about, which I thought was wonderful. I turned 50, and in China they say there's this thing called 50-year-old shoulder, so it's basically frozen shoulder. My shoulder doesn't move around. Was was this something that you were conditioned into accepting? I don't think so, because I was just reminded of it by a okay. friend in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. They're like, you, you remember that it's called 50-year-old shoulder. I was like, oh, right. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, it's not just that the shoulder, it's how the shoulder got frozen and how it feels to live with that frozen shoulder and what kind of intelligence is being transmitted by the frozen shoulder. And that's a big thing for you because you're you're an amazing writer and, mm. and to have frozen shoulder must, um, I mean, obviously it sounds like the body's protesting. Yes. <laughs> but you're a writer. I mean, you're not just a writer, but... You're a very good writer. I mean, I've read various stuff that you've written, and you're you're a very good writer. So, is writing something that you enjoy doing? That you oh that's an important part of your life. And um, how does that relate to this shoulder? And what is your body telling you? And and what's your relationship with your body right now with with that? Just now, Tonio is performing as if he were Sarah's advisor. He's Sarah actually is doing kind of some kind of... Down. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah's sitting here thinking with her mouth open, how did he... I completely forgot about writing. Well, it's like water for you as a fish. No, it's actually something that I avoid. Mm-hmm. Like the real writing. Uh, the writing yes. that I would reach for? Mm. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't reach. So that mm-hmm. that's actually what I was doing a little bit of yoga this morning and I was realizing how conditioned I have become to surrendering into limitation and to accepting what I cannot reach for or have. You know, here I am and this the container gets smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. And I've such that I've stopped mm. reaching. Oh my god. Particularly around my own creativity and around writing because my sense of what I want is I mean Lisa's been trying to just get me to read something at the open reading for like years and I always get up in the middle of it and leave and leaves she leaves yeah it's unbelievable yeah do you talk to your body about this do you negotiate with your body about these kind of things I think that we have begun that process yeah (laughs) (laughs) it might be important to say just how the shoulder did get frozen though yeah, it got frozen because I decided to that 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 I I just got into a work mode, in a fear related work mode. Mm. How did it directly relate to your shoulder physically? I put my shoulder into this position, probably like you never stop working on your computer, so you work on it in ergonomically bad situations, like yeah, you know, like this, and Punched. then like a little. Sarah's looking really hunched and, and she's got her right fingers I'm in, like a in little, typing mode. Yeah. yeah, like a chipmunk yeah. or something. <laughs> and you just wake up one morning and you're in chipmunk mode permanently. 
<laughs> but I'm sure chipmunks don't feel like that. No, I'm sure chipmunks are much more liberated. <laughs> they don't do much typing, I don't think. They do a whole lot of reaching, though, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> so back to the negotiations, the conversations between you and your body about this whole dynamic you have going on around creativity and, and reaching for what you're wanting and what you're most interested and passionate about and what your body is trying to tell you and it seems to know how to get your attention yeah although i i'm prepared to live with this i read that after two years it just goes away oh spontaneously so i'm just really? like oh okay well i've just got two years that i won't lift my arm up can you believe what that? kind of a model are you as an embodiment studies advisor so. i'm embodying disability <laughs> but is that true two years yeah. you, oh so you're you've You've surrendered into... I've surrendered. You know, because when you have children, you surrender that there's going to be about 18 years where you don't have a life. And when, <laughs> and two years when you can't go to the bathroom alone. And these things. A few years where you won't get a decent night's sleep. Uh-huh. So you learn how to put off your life. In quotes. But what about the intelligence that's being transmitted to you by Clearly, your shoulder? Clearly, it's I, I'm I've outworn that um, put off your life, yeah, style of being. That does not mean that I am going to show up to the open reading with something to read, though. Oh, we've got, we'll talk about that later. Okay, because I don't have anything. Have you just surrendered, reaching for two years, or is there more to it than that? Let's talk about something else, and I'll see what arises okay. i don't know how long i've surrendered reaching okay. so i was thinking sure we could go because because what we want to move into is how does this become a study focus how does this become an area of inquiry and we could either just start with sarah or i could talk about me and then we could come back to the area of inquiry thing later but what do you think should we stay with you and keep no let's let's move on to you for okay now. mine is much harder to articulate I've just been noticing my body going through some kind of deep and amazing changes that have to do with its relationship with the living world. And just since I've been here, my bedroom is backed up against the woods because I'm in Weinstein, and the woods have been entering my dreams big time. I mean, this morning I was part of this green web, which is what it looks like when I look out that window. It's so green in there right now, and everything looks woven. And I was just in there being woven in. It was kind of amazing. And the night before, I was in a dream of reciprocity where I was, there was this back and forth between me and these trees and other organisms, and it was in and out and back. I mean, language does not really, it's very hard to go there with language. It was an experiential thing. But as a matter of fact, that's partly what we do in embodiment studies is to try to, I mean, it's maybe the main thing we, is try to find language for experience that has heretofore gone unnamed because we just thought, oh, well, that's been non-conscious, so we try to bring it up to consciousness, but also we've maybe disregarded it, felt it wasn't worth trying to name, and that's some of the work we do with students is saying, I think it would be important to give language to that. So I am trying to find language for the way that these changes are happening in me, but it's really, it's a challenge. I spent time with whales in Baja, Mexico in March, and that was really, that had a profound effect on me. It was entirely embodied, and I'm still taking it in. And I think what I was describing is 
is a part of that, of feeling like it's harder to distinguish now. I feel my body isn't as discreet as it used to be. I don't know if this makes sense, that the boundaries of it are much more porous. Mm. And I do feel myself, well, you know, books have been coming out, like become, lately, Becoming Animal, David Abram, Becoming Earth, Eva Salitis, who worked with whales a lot and has since died, and that was a book she wrote when she was actually dying. It was called Becoming Earth. And I'm feeling like something similar is happening to me, and it's, it's, it's about becoming what's outside of me, feeling it enter me, and it's making me feel both smaller and bigger, if that makes any sense. I, <laughs> it totally makes sense. Yeah. It sounds to me that you're connecting on a more energetic level, and energy is much more fluid. Oh, that's so wonderful. Bodies are, bodies are like yeah. collapsed in the particle state, and energy is flowing in a, in a wave state and it oh, shifts that's and moves and it is porous. Yeah. And it is continually interacting. I think that's exactly right, Antonio. Are you sure you won't want to join this? We might need you in the concentration. That's, that's helpful, actually. I'm available. And our, our third body has, has arrived. We figured it would happen just in time. And she looks very happy. <laughs> That's, I guess, an, em- an embodied practice of being happy. It is one, one practice, one. yeah. Being present, which invites happiness and everything else. <laughs> we are actually doing what we said we would do, and Sarah has had her turn. And I was stretching mine out with the hopes that maybe I intuited that you were on your way. So it's actually, if you're ready to go, we're ready to hear from you about... What's going on for you as a body right now? Mm. And this is Lori Winter, who's another teacher here at Goddard in the Embodiment Studies program, the newly minted Embodiment Studies concentration. Mm. And we did say that you were probably, the reason you were late was probably because you were engaging in some sort of embodied activity like brushing your teeth. <laughs> or other unmentionable <laughs> things on the air. Although that they're not really unmentionable. They're not. They're... You know, that's uh, another conversation, perhaps. Or maybe just to note that part of, I think, this work is to name and honor our body's ways of knowing through sensuality and sexuality, something we don't really talk about except at meals and in the bathrooms, through the stalls, like all the other places where constructing knowledge happens. (laughs) Wow, I'm learning something already. (laughs) That never happened in men's or boys' bath. Well, maybe some of it happened in the boys' bathrooms, but not in the men's bathrooms. Well, a different tone, probably. Mm, I don't know. Yeah, very different tone. So, um, speaking from where we are, where, what's happening in our bodies in this moment, mm-hmm. in this time, I've been very aware in the last uh, maybe year of how fear shows up in my body and where it lands in the body. And for some people, well, I'll speak for myself, it lands in thinking and thoughts, those monkey mind thoughts. And it also lands in flesh, Mm -hmm. in flesh for me. And I'm thinking of when, for me, when I have extra weight on my body, I'm curious about what that is. Is it winter time that I need to feel warmer and need more storage and resource to draw from? which is true sometimes. And I'm also really aware that that's how fear manifests and how, how I feel like I can protect myself. 
So my my body will get thicker with whatever it is, whether it's whatever the added weight is, whatever that's in there that, that shows up from a physiological perspective, whatever we call it. And I'm more interested in the energetics of fear and how we navigate that. So that's something that I've been very aware of in maybe the last year. Mm. I think that's all I have to say in this moment. Really? I was very disappointed. (laughs) You want more? Well, you did start by talking about sexuality and sensuality, and then you sort of dropped that. We want to hear more about that. Well, that's, you know, that's probably connected into fear or vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And what is it? What are the ways we traverse that? that internal landscape of vulnerability and choosing to trust our own selves because I don't know that that we can ever really feel safe you know when people say you got to create a safe space well nah it's life you know the human experience is high risk if we really live open-heartedly and open bellied and open sexuality and open there's there's risk of Poison ivy or sumac or <laughs> lightning, I don't know, could be anything. So to live in this like protected place gives the illusion of like, oh, I'm safe, but uh-huh. not really because then my heart's closed to myself and how unfun is that? Yeah. And you talked about putting on padding. Yeah. To help. I don't know what, we do it unconsciously, so... How does that work? It's it's not like you're consciously creating a defense, ba- defensive barrier, mm. but subconsciously, I think many of us do that. Yeah. So how does that work? The dynamics between the unconscious and, and conscious mm. aspect of that. Mm. I mean, why would that be happening unconsciously if you recognize that there's no safety in this world? Well, one, I, I'm wondering, I mean, <laughs> this is like a reflexive response. Uh, I think of trauma and I think of, I think of primitive brain and I think of fight, flight, freeze or fawning, which I've learned is a fourth way of protecting ourselves. Oh. Just women are, that. Well, I think women are socialized to, to soothe uh, terror. When we feel terrorized, like we can do the fight, flight, freeze but then there's the like, oh, if I soothe the terrorist, <laughs> even if it's myself, <laughs> I'll be safe. And that might be a temporary tactic. But the danger in it is that it can become a habit pattern. And then we live from that place. And that's also not very fun. So something about this unconscious padding is this, I think, reptilian brain response of like, well, this will make me feel safe. And maybe it did when we were dinosaurs. Maybe it, it didn't even then. I don't know. <laughs> but you're jonesing to say something, I think. So when you asked the question, I was thinking, of course, conscious and unconscious is just relative to some position mm. in which some small thing is conscious of some area and the rest of it. But consciousness itself is conscious everywhere. So there's a certain kind of intelligence. And, you know, Lisa's always talking about non-conscious ways of knowing. There's an intelligence, a conscious intelligence that actually is the stuff, that actually is the matter. Yeah. 
which is one of the things we do in embodiment studies is break through dualisms, the spirit-matter dualism being possibly the most important one to break through. That's exactly what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. That matter is intelligent. Intelligence is material. Spirit is matter. <laughs> That's why the poetics of the body is so important to me. And there's lots of different ways of putting that into words. And I think there's a lot of confusion out there about that because there are, there are people in the neuroscientific world that are talking about the unconscious as the body, the body as the unconscious, and how that gets fleshed out mm -hmm. in a way that people can understand it in an embodied sort of way in relation to their own experience and who That's they interesting. are. That's interesting. I've always, like for about 15 years, I've been trying to replace when I, wherever I see the unconscious with body. But I didn't know that neuroscientists were talking about. Not all of them, but some of them. That's yeah. yeah, it kind of works. <laughs> Jungians, too, have... I didn't know that. that. Yeah. Part of depth psychology. Huh. Connecting the body, because it all arises out of the body. Yeah. One of the things that is exciting about embodiment studies is that we jiggle and trouble our habituation to turn the body into an object. So where we're talking about the body and the unconscious and this array of objects that we can relate to from a separate place. So you have to dive into verb and gerund and things like embodiment, which is a different kind of a noun, mm -hmm. a process. Mm -hmm. So that what you know is arising from the moment that you're knowing it. It's not an object that you can continually return to and it's going to be the same. Yeah. Like intuition. Intuition arises out of the unconscious, but it's making itself conscious in some yeah. way. It's a liminal yeah. consciousness phenomenon. Though I it's an emergent yeah. experience. Yeah. I just had a desire... My desire was, as part of this conversation, for us to call in participant, co-participants, a.k.a. students, into this program. Like, who is this right for, and who's out there feeling like they can't relate to the knowledge industry, but they really have a body of scholarship that's going to serve their work in the world? Hmm. Who are those people? Who have they been historically? And who do we intuit that they might be? Ah. And do they know who they are? Do they know that about themselves yet? <clears throat> or is this some unarticulated That's right. feeling or sense? Well, as a matter of fact, historically, inside. there have been a lot of students who are here for a while for couple semesters and then realize, oh, that's what I'm all about. It takes them, well, it's not like they've heard of it before they came here, so there's that, but it takes them a couple of semesters sometimes to know, oh, yes, that's where I belong. Yeah. I like that desire. I like that calling out. I'm thinking about the movers out there in the world, those of us who have to move to think. And if we don't move, hmm. We're unhappy, mm -hmm. or we're grouchy, or we're like, we're congested, we're like, we're clogged up. Antonio, when you said, you know, do they even know that they are these people? Do they know who they are? And I think about the how do we 
call in and validate I want to say the dancers and the athletes, but I don't want to limit it to that skill set at all. It's not limited to that. I want to say the movers, those of us that we're really aware of our sensory experience in the world, that it's really, we need to be outside every day for at least three hours minimum for maintenance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We need to, to be in some kind of movement. We need to sweat. We need to experience the different smells of our bodies that are judged by popular culture we need to feel other people's bodies and fluids and I don't necessarily mean sexual I mean like play Mm -hmm. like this like raw play like that I think maybe not all of us but many of us experience it as children yeah. Where that was either encouraged or we were so neglected that we could do whatever the hell we wanted, which was great also. There's a blessing in that non-helicopter parent culture. <laughs> so something about really valuing and calling forth embodied scholarship does it, or body scholar. Because you had said as a way of knowing, kinesthesia as a way of knowing. Yeah. And like, that's what it is for you. Yeah, and, and, and Elizabeth Minnick was the one who validated that for me mm. in my doctoral work a while ago. And she said something to me about, she goes, well, Lori, thinking, thinking isn't a kinesthetic experience. Uh. And I was like, <laughs> thank you. Like, no one's ever given me permission to claim that awareness. And how many of us out there are that? Mm-hmm. And as we transform what the academy is and what scholarship is to really... Find a way to keep breathing and being that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The more we talk, I think the harder it's going to be to limit this. I mean, <laughs> I don't see why everyone wouldn't want to do what it is that we do. Because for me, it's about, okay, when I got back from Baja and the whales, I understood how much more there was to see and hear and feel and smell than I had ever imagined. And how clueless, basically, I was about the real nature of the world, of this amazing, miraculous physical world that we are also blessed to live in. And I think one of the things that one might be called to embodiment studies to do would be just to expand our awareness, to give ourselves the greater capabilities of contact in all dimensions, you know, of all the senses, to have more deeper, better, fuller contact with this world. Yeah. Yeah, expanding the horizons continually. Sounds mm. like those whales had a lot to oh, teach. Oh, yeah, they did. <laughs> well, and that in itself is such a teaching, you know. And that you were, you were receptive well, and available. And, that, and, and I have to say that we spent every morning, I was with uh, guides. One of them was an animal communicator. They were both yoga teachers, and one of them is an ex-Zen priest. So we began every morning with deep breathing exercises, and it would not have been the same trip had we not grounded ourselves as we did in our bodies. That receptivity was possible because of that, and only because of that, really. Preparing for this, I was thinking about imagination, in this world and thinking about how the world we live in is the product of an ungrounded imagination. Yes, yes, and intelligence. And imagination is such a powerful 
yeah. thing. And if it's grounded, it's part of the whole. If it's ungrounded, then we end up with madness. Well, we're experiencing a nightmare of disconnection right now, which mm-hmm. is, you know, the fear that, I mean, we, we, I like the fact that we didn't begin there, but, you know, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, it's a terrifying time, and, and that's exactly why, because the people in power are more disconnected. They are flying off, what is the expression? Off the handle. Off the handle, is that it? I was thinking, flying off the handle. Anyway, that's what the feeling is. Everything is flying off the handle. (laughs) Disconnection. Right. There's that saying that war is a failure of imagination. I think war is is actually imagination run amok. Yeah. Ungrounded. Ungrounded. And dissociated from the whole. Yeah. I think my experience... I mean, growing up, I mean, children are all embodied. We experience the world viscerally. And then we go to school, and somehow or other, I think most people lose it. It gets ground out of us or sucked out of us. Yeah. And some of us have the opportunity to return to it if we have the right people to encounter or experiences in the world. Yeah. I heard that in what you were saying, Lori. In my life, boy, it was crazy. There was enough craziness that I think I was always wrestling with that. Hmm. Losing it a lot. Losing it very dramatically and traumatically, but also regaining it out of my response to that trauma Uh, and that insanity. And so that actually could take us beautifully to the question of why now? Why embodiment studies now more than ever as a response, although I don't like to have it narrowed down as a response in any way, but it does respond. <laughs> and, <it's, laughs> you know? and it can be very, very yeah. healing. And it yeah. can heal, I suspect, it could probably heal all things if we're present in our bodies with whatever it is. Yeah, if we wanted to start talking about healing and embodiment studies, we could be here for hours. I mean, it's probably really fundamentally what it's about, all about. Yeah. Yeah. Life 101. Yeah. Our bodies. <laughs> Sarah, you, you, you had the question, but I don't, did you even answer that question about why would students be called to, who, who would be called to take on this field of inquiry? Yeah. Why would writers be called? Ah. Yeah, well, I'm a writer. Actually, you know, I come to this, my PhD is in literature, so, and I really, yeah, I'm a writer and a literature person. I was before I started teaching here. So I guess I should feel that. And now here I am completely inside of this. And I've had so many writers take this on. And, oh, God, I think to be a, a good writer, you have to feel and see and hear. And be grounded. Talk about grounded imagination. Isn't that what the best writing is about? I just have to just put in a plug for this book I just read because it is the most superb act of grounded imagination that I've ever encountered. And I wrote to both of you about it. It's The Book of Joan by Lydia Yuknovich. I can't even begin to describe it, but it is a fantasy. It's a totally invented world grounded entirely in the body and the earth. I think it's an embodiment studies book par excellence. And so she would be an example of someone. I mean, God, she could have been an embodiment studies grad where your writing is grounded in what is, you know? I mean, if you want to be that kind of writer and what writer doesn't? I mean, I think that a little bit of, at least a little (coughs) bit of exposure to embodiment studies should be required for all writers. 
because we all know immediately when a writer is not, you know, that right? Or like, any story that anybody's telling, yeah. even if it's yeah. verbal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a short answer. I mean, it could be much longer, but I think that's enough. <laughs> Writers have really thrived doing embodiment studies in this program. Their writing has changed a lot in the process. I'm curious about the ways we identify ourselves. There's a part of me that feels like being a writer is, is more embraced than calling the dancers. Mm-hmm. But there's more emotional charge around, well, I'm not really a dancer, but I'm a mover. But maybe there's more room, permission. Like everybody writes, but not everybody writes. And to think about calling forth the people that don't call themselves writers, but journal every day and write as a way to to clean their neshama, to clean their their soul. (laughs) So something about the languaging around art makers, who I think that's who we're calling forth. Mm. And artists, Mm. too, like is, Mm. is charged. You know, how many of us claim ourselves as artists? We can say we're creative beings, but, you know, so something about not, not to not use those words. I'm just aware of claiming them and then also who we're calling forth who might not yet use that language about themselves yet. Mm. Like me. And, and my, yeah. Well, we all, to exactly. some degree, because all these qualities, all these aspects that you're talking about, they're all interconnected in all of our experiences to different degrees, different combinations, mm-hmm. and at different times. And either using or not using different language to describe it, to embody it, to allow it to be. Mm. I think a lot of this has to do with allowing ourselves to mm. be yes. these things that we're feeling inside of ourselves. And this is one of the things I've really loved <coughs> seeing here at Goddard is that students are empowered to fully explore and discover Yeah themselves and everything inside themselves and to fully honor all those things no matter what they are that there's nothing off limits there's nothing that's taboo there's nothing that's unkosher yeah permission not as if we should need permission but we do but in our culture we we've been so indoctrinated know, through totally western needed. religion and and western science and shaming and shame and right so much shame that the body is to be disregarded and and distrusted yeah. and even science tells us that we're just animals and yeah. and the only thing that separates us from the animals is our neocortex and right. and that we should shun everything below the neck yeah. or at exactly. least not allow it to affect us and yeah. control us or mm-hmm. influence our behavior and our experience. Right. Exactly. And I don't know, I was just going to go somewhere with that that it's like looking at their current president and the the sons and the uh, the animal thing, how talk about being disconnected from what's going on in your nether parts and how you act out on that. And then the sons being trophy hunters. We could go somewhere with all of that. But it's scary. I mean, what we're saying it's all very real. It all has really real implications. And we're trying to build things back up here from the root because things have gone terribly wrong in the civilization and it's just become so obvious now. People haven't learned to ground themselves and we have to ground ourselves through our bodies and if we're disregarding and distrusting our bodies, then we've cut off that avenue. Exactly. We've cut ourselves off at the root. Exactly, 
Yeah. It's funny because I was going to read from this mission. We have this sort of mission statement that I love to read from that comes from a Lebanese journal written from a war zone. And they devoted this journal to the subject of the body. And so I, I like to read the preamble to people when they first come to the embodiment colloquium because I think this is written in a war zone. And I was going to read it on this broadcast, but then I took the wrong pile of papers. And so I'm trying to think, so this is meant to be. I'm not meant to have it. So maybe it means that I should just try to channel it somehow and say it. But I also think we've pretty much said everything that was said in that mission statement, except what's important to say is he's saying, now here in Lebanon, and this is from a war-torn place, he's saying, first, there's three reasons why we were devoting this journal to the body. The first is, and then he goes on to give a litany of things that we've just all pretty much named. The body is shamed, it's garbage, it is poisoned by the kinds of things we ingest, it is suffocated because of the air we breathe. He goes on to list all these things, and he calls it all an all-out attempt to suppress the body. And the second reason is that these attempts are succeeding. And the third reason, which is the one that is the most, is that... There is no other way to revolution than the body. And he says, in this place, unless we listen to our bodies, unless we stop feeling shame about our bodies, now is when I really wish I had the thing to read. But the core of it is, is that our bodies are the place that revolution begins. There is no other place. And if we do not experience our bodies as large and miraculous and a site of endless possibility Mm. that we cannot make the changes that have to be made from Lebanon, from the Middle East. Lisa, that makes me, in a tangential jump, think of one of the names for the divine or God in Hebrew as rachamim, and it means compassionate one, but the root of the word is racham, And in Arabic, it's rechem, and both those words mean womb. Mm. So I'm thinking about this idea of God or goddess divinity that we've been taught in Western culture, that this being outside of us who judges us versus the womb. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. the womb, our body's wombs, the womb of the earth, Mm -hmm. like it's a very embodied experience of divinity and it's revolutionary to recognize that in ourselves and each other and Mm. to touch each other Mm. like womb to womb i like that (laughs) across and we all have that we all have that right i've also related that to the term the void yeah absolutely i had an old teacher who said that human beings are creatures that create void. And what he meant by that was we create this infinite source from which all things arise. And that's so related yeah. to, I think, the That's real, where endless possibilities are. And that totally relates to the imagination because yeah. the imagination arises, is the same thing, yeah. essentially. That's right. And arises from the same place. Yeah. And... To be able to feel that and connect with that, yeah. that's another level of embodiment. Yeah. It's a deeper level of embodiment, but it's still an embodied experience. So 
this notion of embodiment is perhaps a lot deeper than some may suspect. Oh, yeah. It's deep. And how deep can you go? <laughs> That's a question, mm-hmm. perhaps. Ask the whales. <laughs> Ask everything. Yeah. Because <laughs> you were talking about as a writer, writers do embody themselves in the world around them. And we're all, whether we're writers or dancers yeah. or whatever we are, we are in continual conversation with the world around us. Yeah. And there's this recurrent feedback loop going on. We're continually integrating, experiencing, learning, digesting, and reformulating ourselves, re-being yeah. <laughs> in relation to everything. And everything else around us is also having the same experience in relation to us and everything else. So there's this multi-layered, multi-dimensional... And- we're also dying and being reborn, all mm-hmm. of us together. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally. Yeah, in relation to it. And because of everything yeah. around us. Yeah. yeah. And then there's a lot of deaths that shouldn't be happening <laughs> at the same time. I mean, you can't talk about whales without talking about extinction. So mm-hmm. very much my experience with the whales was, was colored by what I know what's about what's happening to them. And if we're honestly living in our bodies in this world... We exactly. sent, we feel the consequences yes. of yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah. And if we aren't, we don't. So that explains a lot right. about what's happening right now. Right, and connecting with, with part of your curriculum, one of the things, when I was in high school, I think probably the most dramatic awakening to that kind of thing in the world was when I read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Mm. The horror and tragedy of, yeah. of what human beings can do to masses of other human beings. Yeah. This might be a good segue to something that Sarah and I worked on. Uh, we actually gave a, we did a workshop at NWSA on the question of the body and decolonization. So I would like to hand it to you. Could you say a little bit about that? So one of the things that we've been talking about today is the effects in the real world of what can be called European intellectual imperialism Mm. and all kinds of imperialism. Mm. And we've been talking a lot about the body as it is located in uh, an ecological web, not just look, see, here we have the body located in all this language. It has slight separations in Mm. it. Mm -hmm. So there's also a social web that we are living with in and weaving and unraveling. And there's curious questions about, first of all, the tremendous amount of knowledge that comes from living in bodies that are marginalized by the social structures and the tremendous energy that it takes to explain what is known mm-hmm. from the margin back to the center. Mm-hmm. The what we come to understand is the tremendous resistance to listen to those Mm. messages Mm -hmm. and you know what we have named those resistances like fragility and other things so i think one of the questions that lives in the program in our community is what is the relationship between social justice and embodiment how do we bring our bodies to that 
But I think what there's even deeper implications than what you said about um, Western imperial mind and the separation in the language. In so many ways, embodiment studies works inside an indigenous. It does indigenous knowledge systems are very much what we're tr- we're also working with here because because of what you said about separation, that we're trying to find a language in which that separation is not there, and it's very. It's a very hard thing. Robin Kimmerer's work and, you know, just the fact that we call the earth it, <laughs> that we call animals it instead of she or he or they. And, but, no, there's something that still that hasn't been said here about decolonization and embodiment studies. It goes even deeper than what we've said, and I'm not getting to it. But the light went on when you were talking. I don't know if you Well, one of the mind. things Robin Kimmerer talks about, she's an indigenous woman who's yeah. a botanist who right. teaches botany in the university, and she wrote a book called Braiding Sweetgrass, which yeah. is this beautiful dialogue between botany and indigenous botany, yeah. Yeah. indigenous what we call ethnobotany, but that's kind of a ridiculous term. It's not ridiculous, but it it implies that some botanies are ethno and some botanies are not ethno. And she wakes up the reader to the kinds of consciousness that can invent certain kinds of language and that create knowledge and create a world out of a particular awareness. And she talks about re-indigenizing. Yeah. She talks about not appropriating someone else's indigenous knowledge. But becoming indigenous, becoming into relationship yeah. with land. And doesn't she and place. talk about how she has to balance, she's trained as a scientist, <coughs> but her indigenous ways of knowing have to do not with separating from the object, but knowing the object in an intimate way. So from the inside out, from loving the earth and knowing the earth in an intimate way, the knowledge that she has from that is knowledge that hasn't been honored where she studied in scientific right. departments, right? Right. But she values science, scientific approaches as well, so how to integrate those those ways of knowing. So her, her project is sort of a decolonization project right. at the level of knowledge. Yeah. And then there's also extending the decolonization project to, you know, decolonization is this twining of the genocide of the indigenous right. people with the transatlantic slave trade. So they're yes. both part of the same thing. Yes. And they're projects that can support each other to look at actively dismantling yes. colonialism, right. which means dismantling racism right. in the present moment. So how do all of these pieces come together in what we now see as a social justice movement right. I'm just like feeling Lori here because she's been doing this work for yeah. a really long time. And this is WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, the Magical Mystery Tour with Lisa Weil, Lori Winter, and Sarah Van Hoy. I feel like I keep landing back in this anchor of knowing that really woke me up 25 years ago. And it was reading Audre Lorde, who we were talking about the power of the erotic yesterday and erotic energy as creative life-giving energy which is so embodiment so <laughs> so at the root of everything yeah and so what i'm thinking sarah as you were talking though from was from her essay poetry is not a luxury 
And I guess I'm a recovering philosophy major as an undergraduate where I studied existentialism and phenomenology. Oh, boy. And when I read the line in Poetry is Not a Luxury where it says, the white fathers told us, I think, therefore I am. Mm. And the black mother in each one of us Mm. whispers, I feel, therefore Uh. I can be free. Mm. And when I think about this scholarship from this place of indigenous knowing which all of us have if we trace ourselves back to our indigenous original cultures Mm -hmm. thinking and feeling there was this i'm gesturing with my hands because i don't really have the language for it you can help me if you can the language of connection yeah they they were inextricably interlinked there was no separation there was no dualism there may have been a shift in the dynamics of power in that relationship but they had to coexist in some way. They had to find some kind of harmonious and maybe dissonant at times connection. So. The possibilities of integrating those two elements in a constructive, healthy, grounded way. Mm-hmm. And to do that, we need to create a language of connection. Part of the science aspect of this, putting it to good use. Yeah. Science has been dissecting and everything. And right. And now it's time to put it all back together. Exactly. Before we die because we've been And kill taken apart. everything on the face of the earth. Yeah. But I think we haven't even fleshed out as much as we could because we've talked about slavery and genocide. And it's, it's the same mind behind the slavery and the genocide that is behind the disconnection that's become epidemic now. So it is important to go to those places. I do a workshop called Why Go to Dark Places, and I usually talk about the Holocaust, actually, but slavery and genocide would be other dark places to go to. Those are Holocausts. Yeah, yeah, and, and all of them are related. And mm-hmm. here, we thought we were just talking about the body here, but look, we're ranging through. This is why I'm saying it's hard. The body is a, is a, big, <laughs> is a big thing. Yeah. It's bigger than just our we're, physical body. Yeah. We're talking about colonial history and... The collective body, the collective history of of our body. Yeah, yeah. And the horrible abuse and trauma. I mean, trauma comes up a lot in embodiment studies. And what bodies can do to other bodies when they feel disconnected, dissociated, and separate. Yeah. And subject to things like fear Mm. and greed. Exactly in its fullest flowering right now. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Yeah, the last hurrah. I hope so. (laughs) We hope. Well, I had said at the beginning it would be interesting if we could, the the body experiences that each each of us brought in. And you actually didn't have a turn, did you? (laughs) (laughs) I thought I had escaped. (laughs) Me. Hmm. I've been neglecting my body For many, many years, I took really good care of my body. I would do Tai Chi and some yoga and and meditate. Took really good care of myself. And I'm about to turn 60. What? And I... This guy looks like 40 years old to me. That's amazing. And I'm like... You talk about surrendering your frozen shoulder. I feel like I'm kind of surrendering my life. It's like, I can't believe, I still feel like a kid inside. I still feel like the 17-year-old. Yeah, that's why you look really young. I still feel like the 17-year-old going on three. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Really? I've always felt that way. I've always been connected to this place inside of me. Mm. But what happened? What, what's, what's all the surrendering about? Not the good kind of surrender. No, not the good kind of surrendering. It's like rejecting who I am. Mm. Giving up or going through the process of processing that, huh. that experience. Mm. Seeing my body change, experiencing it. But a lot of it is fear and limited thinking that I'm wrestling with. Huh. Huh. Could probably wrestle with it in a more dedicated way. Huh. Is that enough? Well, is there, <laughs> would you like to do something about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm always open to possibilities. Well, I mean, if you were a student in the in the program, right. that, I mean, that I might ask right. you that. No, you know I've, what I mean? I've thought in exactly those <laughs> terms. In fact, I was just thinking of if, if I was a student, I could <laughs> I could see myself doing that. And then we could actually build a, up a study plan around that. Yep. And it would have to draw in some resources, though. We'd have to have some books in there, you know. <laughs> I mean, well, this is after all, you graduate from this program with an MA degree, and people do actually do a lot of book learning in this program, like a ton. And embodiment, I just do need to say, because our talk hasn't suggested this so far, but that students in embodiment studies have turned out incredibly rigorous scholarly theses. Brilliant work. Yeah, really true. Yeah. I mean, truly amazing. And I think our listeners have heard from quite a few of those students. Yeah. But back to you. Well, um, we only have about 15 <laughs> minutes. I don't know that we want to waste right. it on me. Well, well, I mean, I think it might be instructive if we could take any of the three of us and try to... Well, my case, because I'm sort of in that, I'm sort of doing my own study plan. I'm just <coughs> reading constantly about animals and humans and the human-animal relationship. I mean, I can't read enough about whales since I've come back. And I would definitely this semester be building my study plan around the question of the human-animal divide, which is, in fact, right now, it's a very hot subject. And many, many people are writing about it. Donna Haraway's When Species Meet, Thomas DeWall, Dutch philosopher, has just written a book about, about animal intelligence. I forget the title. Then there's the guy Foster who became a badger, tried to become a badger and live as a badger for a while. I mean, a lot of Helen MacDonald's H's for Hawk would be on my, a lot of books right now in philosophy and literature and what's now called animal studies are writing about this thing. And I would build my study plan around that. And But it began with what's going on in my body. That would be a good example, I think. And I just want to say the piece, it's, one of the unifications or the dissolving of the dualisms is this notion of scholarship as being external because when it becomes relevant then it is juicy and full of endorphins and (laughs) awakening and a real relationship rather than sort of get down on your knees and read these books yes I love that, that it's not, yeah, because I, I don't want to suggest that it's just, well, I'll cite her and I'll cite her. No, I now have a living dialogue with these writers because I'm doing what they're doing. Yes, yeah, so Lisa, so living dialogue, it just made me think of, so we are reading these texts and our body is a text also. Yes. So how does our text 
And I got this actually, I go in and out of rabbinical school and the language is text. Everything's <laughs> reading text. And I'm very aware more and more as I'm in rabbinical school, what I love about it and what also I don't. And what I love is that I think of my body as text and our bodies as text relating to the text of the person that we're reading, then it's a whole different kind of engagement, mm-hmm. which is very somatic and juicy. And the other day you put it another way, um, experience is research. You know, the way that we've limited our understanding of what research, okay, have I done enough research? You know, that's a question that students ask a lot. And some of them have done a huge amount of external research, and yet they haven't done enough inner research, experiential research. That counts. Our body is a really important resource, not a secondary. It should be our primary resource, really. (laughs) And I totally felt that text-to-text conversation going on. Mm. It brings the non-living text alive Mm. in the context (laughs) (laughs) of our living bodies Mm. and experience Mm. yeah Mm. and it's happening everywhere with everything Mm. yeah everything nothing's separate nothing is less than sacred Mm. and everything is in conversation with everything else all Mm. the time all the time all the time. Everything. We should say everyone because, again, that's to thingify. That's what Kimmerer was saying. Why do we call <coughs> that a thing? You know, everyone. Let's say everyone. By everyone, I mean yeah. well, all of uh, all yeah. my relations. I like to call people critters sometimes <laughs> yeah, just, to, good. just to balance the scales. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. I love that there's this nest right here. This robins have been coming in and out of the nest. It's just perched on the wall behind the window here. Yeah. <laughs> the whole time they were we here. Talk. That nest was here <coughs> and the same thing was happening last year. Wow. Yeah. So it's a protected space. Yeah. Hmm. So there are some safe spaces. Oh yeah. Goddard is a refugia. We've been talking yes. about refugia. Yeah. yeah. It's a yeah. wonderful place where people can come and really deeply experience the things that they most want to experience. But having to go back out into the quote-unquote real it's world. Hard, yeah. is And is it really real? <laughs> <laughs> yes, which is the real world? Good question. Well, neither of you has talked about how your corporeal experience might translate into a study plan. Ever since the very beginning when we talked about my arm, there's been a part of my recesses that's been digesting and forming my study plan that I had a failed semester last (laughs) semester. Yes, you did fail. No credit this time. Yeah. You failed? I enlisted (coughs) Lisa to be my advisor to help me move forward on my book. And now I feel like my joy, I feel my excitement, all the little connections are happening again. I know why I want to say it. I know what I want to say. Because of this conversation? Yes. And more importantly, I also know I'm comfortable with the fact that I actually don't know what I want to say, which is why I would... Okay, so here's the thing. We always arrive at this, oh, yes, I know this thing. Oh, yes, I, there's something I want to say. There's this argument that I want to make. I don't have any of that. I have a whole lot of curiosities that sort of like tendrils kind of weave in different directions. And maybe like little rootlets, they kind of toss the dirt <coughs> around a little and 
become locations where the microbes come and the insects come. You know, the areas around roots are very nutritious, Mm. but there isn't a discrete thing, you know. And because of what poetics are, which is the thing, there's no discrete thing. You, You can't write a thing about poetics. So you have to write from and be in a place where you are touching, stroking, palpating, feeling the emergent moment so that you can articulate it gorgeously, which means that everything else becomes essential. For instance, the notion of not taking care of my body, which I share, and I share that language, I'm not taking care of my body, as if I can do that, as if my body is something that I can take care of or not take care of. Mm. So to change the language to really feel, I'm not caring for myself. Ah. There really isn't an experience I have in this world that's not my body, Mm. radically. So the study plan has these two sides to it. One is all of the things about the poetics of the body that my brain, body as text, leads us to this notion of hermeneutics, the rules for making interpretations about texts Mm -hmm. upon which medicine is based. Wow. And religion. Wow. Poetics is not a hermeneutics, right? It's a different practice that you do around text. So what does that mean if all bodies are poems? Because the word made flesh. Yeah. Because consciousness as everything is a continually fractal poetic unfolding. Mm -hmm. So then what is medicine? Uh, And then what is religion? uh, And that's why. And what is everything? What is everything? Right. So there's this way that poetics of the body has become kind of prescriptive in particularly in healing. Like it's useful to have stories and you know, narrative medicine and things like that. You're saying just the opposite. And I'm saying the opposite. I'm not wanting to be prescriptive. I'm wanting us all to live at the fractal edge of the unfolding of our collective consciousness, which is why it's so important for embodiment studies students to do what they're doing because they are turning inside out the glove of knowing at each point and node in the world so that the whole world becomes turned inside out. Oh, that's beautiful. Vulnerable, (laughs) fleshy people. That that was amazing. I know. I agree. That was priceless. You have to write this book, Sarah. I mean, really, there's just no way around it. Okay. Like now. You have to help me. I've been putting myself out there. I'm available. Okay. (laughs) That was beautiful. That was so beautifully said. Do you want to briefly say how you could do it? I I can only briefly say because I need an advisor. (laughs) I think I need several, but... (laughs) I, I think my practice more than anything right now, my should voice says you need to write. But my yummy voice, my like priestess of yum voice says... You need to just keep the kitchen door open and the kettle on for conversation and contact and relationship. And I recently moved from rural, middle-of-nowhere area that was amazing for raising my family 
to a little apartment in the middle of New Paltz that I don't lock my door and I come home and friends are in my apartment like doing laundry, making tea and the conversations that we have are my buffet. (laughs) And every time I have conversations or we have conversations, we keep saying, we need to record these. We need to make podcasts. People need to be part of this. We need to share this. Or like, we're writing down what each other are saying. So I don't know how to make that into a study plan right yet. And Still cooking. I, Still cooking. The kettle. The, the essays that are coming out of these conversations in the form of conversation, the art of visiting with each other. Uh-huh. Like, whether it's, you know, four hours of like uninterrupted time because we have to have that luxury in between our work schedule or whether it's like 10 minutes of like, we have 10 minutes, let's get right down to the essence, like get to the center of the shiatsu conversation, like where you really can. So something that's about that. Yeah. Or you could just keep experiencing it and not make something of it. Yeah. It sounds like you're so inside it now that you're not ready to come outside and look at it or write about it. You want to keep living it. I don't know that I ever want to come outside of anything. <laughs> yeah. Like, why <laughs> do I well, have to? To some extent, you kind of have to do that if you're going to write a study plan. <laughs> but that's why I asked, why? Why? Why do you have to go there? <laughs> As someone who dropped out of college first semester... I didn't follow that path. I actually expected that I would follow the path that you followed academically, <coughs> that I would avoid the world, you know, the quote-unquote real world, because it was so distasteful, and I would just go to school and do a lot of graduate studies and then teach. But that didn't happen at all. Any last words? This has been wonderful. I've, mm. I've loved this conversation. Amazing things have come, yeah. come out of this. I have, too. Yeah, it feels like we're all sort of on that edge that Sarah's describing. I feel I am. It feels like this conversation has been a conversation on the edge. Mm-hmm. And I love those kinds of conversations. Me too. Thank you so much, all of you. Lisa Weil, Lori Winter, Sarah Van Hoy. We should do it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Magical Mystery Tour. Until next time, have a wonderful week.